0: is Nehemiah chapter 6. If you have your bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6 as we are continuing with this sermon series this fall walking through this amazing story and this amazing book of Nehemiah. You know, I titled the sermon this morning and I had a little bit of fun with this one. Usually I'm boring with sermon titles, but uh, I named this one Nehemiah's True Conspiracy Theory. Uh, now, conspiracy theories are an interesting thing. You know what it is, right? Like when, you, when there's something that happens and it seems like there's an explanation at face value, but then you start wondering, is there something more going on here? Next thing you know, you get sucked into a rabbit hole of Netflix documentaries and YouTube videos and, and you've wasted a day or whatever it is. And sometimes it can be fun. A lot of times it's just rooted in paranoia and probably not the best use of your time. But in Nehemiah's case, it was absolutely true. What we're gonna see here is that his enemies are now conspiring against him. And they're, instead of, as what we saw in chapter four, something that was more overt, something that was more direct form of opposition, now we see them pulling strings behind the scenes, trying to work against Nehemiah and against the mission in more manipulative, covert ways. We're going to see their scheming against Nehemiah to stop him from accomplishing the mission. And, guys, we've been saying this every week in this sermon series, and I'm gonna keep on doing it. Nehemiah's mission was what? It was to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem that had been rubble for 150 years. As followers of Christ, what is our mission? It's the Great Commission. Right to go into all the world, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. It is to go and make disciples through proclaiming the gospel through proclaiming the message that Jesus Christ is God who has come in the flesh, who has paid for our sins on the cross, who has risen victorious from the dead three days later, so that when we turn away from our sins, we believe the gospel and we receive Christ into our life, we will be saved. That is the gospel. And our mission as followers of Christ is to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples. And so... Our enemies are also scheming against us. And just as the enemies in Nehemiah's day were scheming to try to get them to stop building the wall, our enemies are scheming against us to keep us from proclaiming the gospel. And remember what our enemies are, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We unpacked that a few weeks ago. But my goal this morning is that as we look at this conspiracy theory, this conspiracy that has been leveled against Nehemiah and the people, I hope that we will see the schemes of our enemy, that we will be alert to them so that nothing will stop us from our mission. As it says in 2 Corinthians 2:11. so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Church, please don't be ignorant of his schemes so that we will not be taken advantage of. Because here's the main point. This is what I hope to show you from this text this morning. We should be alert to the schemes of the enemy and resist them as we carry on the mission. So we're gonna study Nehemiah chapter six this morning. Let's begin by reading the first four verses. Then we'll open with a word of prayer. The word of God says... Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at Hakaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And so, Father, at this time, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your holy and inspired word. We ask, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts and minds to receive what you would teach us today. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We want to hear what you would show us from your word, that we might be a more accurate reflection of you in the world. And Father, I wanted to take a moment in the service today, before the sermon this morning, because I know it's been on all of our hearts and minds. Father, I wanted to take a moment and pray over the situation unfolding in Israel. Father, our hearts are heavy and they are grieved as we've been watching the news this past week to see the the senseless violence and destruction and murder and chaos that has been taking place. Father, our hearts are grieved and heavy. Father, when we see this kind of horrible thing taking place, it makes us cry out, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Our hearts long for the day of your return when you will make all things new again, where there will be no more death, no more pain. And so Father, while we're here, we ask that you would bring about peace. We ask that there would be an end to the violence. We ask for peace. We ask that those who have been perpetrating violence and murder would be brought to justice swiftly. We ask, O Lord, that even in a tragic situation like this, that your name would be honored, that you would be glorified, and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask for peace. We ask for justice. And we ask all of these things, believing that you are the almighty God who is able to do all things. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Nehemiah chapter 6. I want to show you the enemy's schemes this morning the schemes that the enemy is using to try to prevent this work from going forward. I want to show you four things. The first scheme is distraction. It's distraction. That's what we just read about, distraction. Now, what's interesting is in verse one, we see that the wall is done, right? He said, I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it. Although up to that time, I had not set up the doors in the gate. So they're like 98% of the way done. They're still the last 2%. They have to finish up with the gates and with the doors. And when the enemies see that they're almost done and they've seen that everything they've tried up until this point has failed, now they're going to try a more covert tactic. They're going to have a meeting. And maybe they're trying to play this off as some sort of, okay, You know, can't beat them, join them. Let's negotiate. Let's come to the table. Let's sort this out. Let's figure this whole thing out. Let's let bygones be bygones, Nehemiah. Maybe that's the way they're framing it. But Nehemiah knows better. He said, they intended to do me harm. They say, come, let us meet together at Hakaphirim. I have no clue if I'm saying that right. At Hakaphirim, in the plain of Ono. Dude, you stole the punchline. (laughs) As I was going to say, they wanted to meet in Ono, oh and Nehemiah's response was, "Oh no! You see, guys, I just turned 30, uh, and I'm a dad, so it's only going to get worse." Like the dad jokes from this point on, it's only it's only downhill from here. They wanted to meet with him, and he wouldn't do it because he knew that it was a trap, right? It says, "I, I in, perceived that they intended to do me great harm." You ever seen in Star Wars where they realize that they're attacking the Death Star and they think they're successful, and then what does the alien dude with the big eyes go? What does he say? It's a, it's a trap. That's what Nehemiah does here. He's about to go to this meeting. He's like, this is a trap. This is not going to work. So this is what he says, verse 3. He said, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should have the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I was joking with people, this is the biblical way to handle meeting requests. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, But here's the deal. There's a lot of wisdom in verse three, a lot of wisdom in verse three that shows us how we respond to distractions that are gonna keep us from doing what God has called us to do. First of all, notice that Nehemiah declared his priorities. He was very clear. The work comes first. The mission that God had given him comes first. Why should the work stop while I come over to you. Notice also how he wisely manages his time. Ono was 27 miles away from Jerusalem and a day before cars, So it would have been a long journey there and a long journey back. So he says, I don't have time for this. We have a mission that we're all about. And also, here's one that I really like. Nehemiah set boundaries. He knew how to say no. Any people pleasers in the house? Just me? A couple of you guys? What's the hardest thing for a people pleaser to do? Say no. But Nehemiah taught us this. He said no, and as we're going to see in a minute, he said no four times. There is something that's really important for us learning how and when to say no, that there is a right time and place for us to say no. It has to do with our priorities as followers of Christ. We have to say no even to good things sometimes so that we can say yes to the best things. But look at verse four. They sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. It's like my daughter Hannah in the car. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. They keep asking, come on, let's meet, let's meet, let's meet. And he keeps saying, no, this is a distraction. And he sees right through it. And guys, the same principle applies to us today. Our mission, as we've already said, is to develop authentic followers of Christ, to declare the gospel, to make disciples. And I want to show you this morning that one of the greatest weapons in the enemy's arsenal is distraction. There are many ways that he can try to oppose us and keep us from doing the work that God has called us to do. But one of the easiest ways is distraction, to get us to focus on other things, to get us to focus on lesser things. This is a major threat for us. I love this quote from John Ortberg. He said, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it, that we are distracting ourselves to death. So what are some ways that the enemy distracts us in our day and age and in our culture? Here's a real easy one for you. Technology. If we can't say amen, we ought to say ouch. You know, I did a little bit of research. Here's a few statistics. The average screen time in 2021 of adults ages 16 to 64 was about seven hours, seven hours. For 20-somethings, of which I I have not been for three weeks now, uh, the average iPhone screen time is four hours per day. Four hours per day, staring at a tiny little screen. The average Netflix subscriber watches for about 3.2 hours per day. Guys, we are distracting ourselves to death. If Satan wants to get you to stop preaching the gospel, to become ineffective in your life and in your ministry, he doesn't even need to get you to fall into some scandalous sin anymore. He just needs to give you an iPhone. But I don't wanna be like, you know, just on an anti-technology rant. Like, yes, God uses it for good. Yes, it is a helpful tool that we use to share the gospel, of course, and to grow in our lives. But let me just share with you one discipline that I've recently implemented in my life is I try to take a conscious break every day. Like put the phone in the drawer where I can't see it and can't hear it. And I try to have a 24 hour period, a day every week where the phone just goes away for an entire day. Man, I think that's so important for us to make sure that we are using technology and that technology is not using us because it can become a distraction in our spiritual lives and for our mission. But not just technology, it can also be ideological things. As followers of Christ, there are many things that we can and should be concerned about, whether it be political issues, whether it be social issues, whether it even be a biblical or a theological issue, you know, a second or a third tier doctrine that we're passionate about. But here's what happens. Sometimes we can take any number of those kinds of things and we can make it our main priority, our main focus. It can become central in our lives and central in our thinking where we become preoccupied and obsessed with something that's not the gospel. And it can become a distraction, because it is keeping us from focusing on the gospel, focusing on what comes first. So what do we do about it? How do we fight distraction as followers of Christ? I've said this before, but I think this is a helpful quote. The main thing is to keep the main thing. Anybody know? The main thing. The most important thing for us is to keep the main thing as the most important thing, as the main thing, that which is central in our lives, and in our church, the most important thing we can do is to keep the gospel at the center, to keep the gospel the focus. This message about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most important thing is that we keep that central as the one thing. Listen to how Paul puts this in Philippians 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I exhort all of us this morning, like Nehemiah, don't get entangled in distractions when they come calling for your attention. Even if you have to say no four times or even more than that, keep your focus on the mission. Keep your focus on Christ, on the gospel. Keep doing what God has called you to do, to build his kingdom. So the first scheme of the enemy is distraction. The next is deception. Deception. Let's pick it up in verse five. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews are intending to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So when Nehemiah refuses their meetings four times, they now come with a new tactic and request to number five. They bring to him an open letter. Why does that matter? Well, it was a breach of etiquette. In this day, if you were sending a letter to an official, to a governor like Nehemiah, it would have been sealed with a royal seal to signify that it had not been opened yet so that the message was private. I think they intentionally sent it to him as an open letter because they wanted word to get around. They wanted the rumor to get out. What, how does it start? It says, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also agrees. You ever, ever, anybody ever do that? To you like, hey, all these people are saying this, by the way, like, all these people think this. It's a very common manipulation tactic. All these people think this, and what is are they saying? The contents of this letter are obviously false. They're saying, you just are doing this because you wanna be king and you wanna rebel against Persia. So if you know anything about history in the Persian empire and Jerusalem at this time, you'd know how foolish that is. They'd get squashed like a bug. It would be absolutely foolish. And obviously this is false. They're trying to use gossip, a malicious rumor, to intimidate Nehemiah into capitulating to their meeting. We can word it this way. This is deception through gossip. This is deception through gossip. So what does Nehemiah do? He says, you guys are making this up. You're inventing this whole thing in your own mind. It is a quick and dismissive and direct denial. He sees right through it. He said, they just wanna frighten us. And then he leaves it in God's hands. Verse nine, he prays, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. He leaves it to the Lord. I'd like to apply this to us as Christians in our church family through this idea of gossip. Let's chat about gossip for a couple of minutes. I believe there's no sin that's quite so common in church life as gossip. There also might not be another one that's more dangerous in church life than gossip. It can tear churches apart like that. And I want to talk about both if you're on the receiving end of gossip and if you're the, on the spreading end of gossip and at what we ought to do as followers of Christ to honor the Lord in both of these. If you're on the receiving end of gossip, meaning that you find out that someone has said something about you, what do you do? Well, Nehemiah shows us here a quick, dismissive, direct denial is sufficient. No need to go on the defensive, no need to have this crusade to clear your name or worry about it, and here's why. God is your defender. God is your defender. Look at what Jesus did in 1 Peter 2, 23. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Think about Isaiah 53 when it says, like a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So we trust that God is our defender, leaving it in his hands. But here's something you probably haven't thought about. You know what you ought to do when you find out that someone has talked bad about you? You should rejoice. You should celebrate. They're like, Nate, have you fallen off your rocker or something? What are you talking about? It's terrible when people are gossiping about me. You should rejoice. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus's word for it. This is what he says Matthew five eleven and twelve. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Then he says it again. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love in Acts when it says the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy. If you're on the receiving end, leave it in the Lord's hands and rejoice. Trust that He is your defender and He will make sure that all things are made right. If you are, on the other hand, tempted to spread gossip, you hear something, you know something, you think something and you wanna talk about it, you wanna share it, you wanna spread it around, let me give you four questions that you should ask yourself when you're tempted to gossip. These are four questions that you should ask yourself. Question one, first and foremost, is it true? Is this true? This thing that I've heard, is this just a rumor? Is this just a perception? Or is this actually true? Because in Nehemiah's case, it was clearly not true. It was a lie, it was false. Make sure that we are not like the enemies, like the evil one, spreading things that are not true. Consider the source carefully. Is it true? Number two, regardless of whether it's true or not, is it helpful? Is it helpful for me to share this information? Is me sharing this information going to be beneficial to anyone involved? Third question where's my heart? Where's my heart? Why do I want to share this? What is my motive? Is my motive that I'm genuinely concerned and out of love I am sharing this so that we can come and help and support this person? Or more often, is it that it helps me feel better about myself to tear others down? That it boosts my pride and my ego to verbally tear apart somebody else? That should never be the case as followers of Christ. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupting talk is literally talk that's corrosive, that destroys, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must always speak in order to build other people up, never to tear other people down. So where's my heart? Last question. Would I say this to them? Or would I say this in front of them? Or even would I be embarrassed if they found out that I said this? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then it's gossip, plain and simple. We need to be the kind of people who our yes is our yes and our no is our no, that are transparent and honest. So let me encourage you guys, as a church family, let's have a church culture that refuses to tolerate gossip that we both refuse to do it, to speak evil of others, and we refuse to listen to it. Somebody comes to you, did you hear about what so-and-so is doing? I saw them and blah, 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 blah. Your first question ought to be, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Have you talked to them about that yet? If not, then how about we go and talk to them together? Let's make this right so that we can be in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Guys, that's how we should handle it. Let's have a church culture that refuses to tolerate gossip. But the third scheme of the enemy that we see in this text is temptation. It's temptation. Verse 10. There's a lot of names here. Have some grace for me. I'm gonna do my best. Now, when I went into the house of Shemeiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So now here's what's going on Nehemiah is visiting the home of someone in Jerusalem who's confined to their home. And this person makes a prophecy. They say, hey, they're coming tonight. There is an, an attempt on your life that is coming tonight. They're going to try and kill you. So here's what you need to do. You need to go and hide in the temple because they can't get to you there. How does Nehemiah respond? First of all, he said, should a man such as I run away? This is the thing you need to know about Nehemiah. He was a man. Like Nehemiah was, he was like a man's man. We're gonna read chapter 13 in a couple of weeks and you'll see like Nehemiah, he wouldn't scare to nobody. So he's like, do you think I'm a wimp? No, I'm not running away. But then even better is the second part of his response. He said, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? He understood the Old Testament law. He understood the word of God that said only priests were allowed to enter into the temple. Numbers eighteen seven is where it says, and you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood and all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil that you shall serve. And I give your priesthood as a gift. And here's the key. And any outsider, that is any non-priest who comes near, shall be put to death. And Nehemiah had probably read about what happened the last time a leader in Jerusalem tried to enter into the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 26, listen to this. But when he, that is King Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy, broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. God said, only priests are allowed in the temple. Uzziah didn't take him seriously. God himself carried out the death penalty on Uzziah through leprosy. A painful, painful way to go. Nehemiah knows all of this. He knows the law, he knows the story. And so here's what I want you to see. In this moment, he's being told, there is a death threat against your life tonight. Go and hide in the temple. He had to choose in that moment, am I going to fear man or am I going to fear God? Am I going to fear man and what might happen to me, what they might do to me, or am I going to fear God and respect what he has said? Nehemiah makes his choice. He said, I will not go in he saw right through the scheme of the enemy. He said, this prophet, quote unquote, had been paid off by Sanballat and Tobiah because, verse 13, for this purpose, he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So I wanna show us, for us as Christians today, two ways that we can apply this in our lives. Looking at verse 13. Nehemiah had a choice to make. Am I gonna fear God or am I gonna fear man? Sometimes we have to make that same choice every single day. Who am I gonna listen to here? Am I gonna fear God or am I gonna fear man? The fear of man is such a common temptation for us. What does it mean when the Bible talks about the fear of man? What does it mean? It means that I am more concerned with what people think, with what people might say, with what people might do than I am with God. That the controlling, decisive influence and factor in my life is the opinions and the approval of other people. Every decision that I make, everything that I do, every word that I say is carefully calculated to win the approval of other people instead of the approval of God. What does scripture say about the fear of man? Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: the fear of man lays a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, it says the fear of man lays a snare. Do I have any hunters here today? I mean, it's Gloucester, so there should be a couple of you guys. Well, the rest of them are probably out hunting. That's what it is. <laughs> but here's the deal. I'm not. Uh, in fact, my dad really was. He, the last time I went hunting, I was a kid. My dad took me with him. Uh, and, you know, because I was such an avid hunter, I brought my Game Boy with Pokemon on it. <laughs> Um, so I remember I'm sitting there by the tree and playing, and then it, I get cold and I start crying. Uh, so then my dad takes me home and I don't go hunting again. Like, that's the whole story, uh, in case you were wondering. I, I told that story in the first service and Brian texted me. He's like, was that last year? No, it wasn't last year. Uh, it, was, it was a long time ago. But I know enough about hunting to know what a snare is. Okay, not like the snare drum, like a snare. It's a trap that you use to trap an animal so that then you can kill him. In the same way, what scripture tells us, that's the very metaphor it uses for the fear of man. It's saying fearing man, being concerned with what people think more than being more concerned than what God thinks. That's a snare. It's a trap. It's something that will catch you and you will be stuck and paralyzed until you meet your end. That's a dramatic metaphor, but that's what scripture tells us about the fear of man. It is a trap. It is paralyzing. It is enslaving. So what do we do about it? The solution to the fear of man is the fear of God. It is making a conscious decision that I care more about what the creator of the universe thinks than what people think. I am more concerned with God's approval than man's approval. And guess what? If you're in Christ, he already approves of you perfectly. That is freeing. So here's the deal. Learn to obey and trust God regardless of what people might say, what people might think, what people might do. Fear the Lord alone. But the second thing we learn from this text it says at the second half of verse 13, they wanted to do this so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me, they wanted to ruin his reputation. We know in the New Testament, when it talks about leaders in the church, the number one qualification is they must be above reproach. They must have such a character in their lives that no one could credibly make an accusation of serious wrongdoing that would bring dishonor on them in the church. They wanted to trick Nehemiah into sinning in order to ruin his reputation, to discredit his leadership and to threaten the mission. So as followers of Christ, let me encourage you, we don't only flee from sin because it's terrible for us, because it displeases the Lord. All of those things, yes and amen. We flee from sin for those reasons. But I would suggest to you that we also ought to flee from sin as followers of Christ so that we don't ruin our name. We don't ruin our testimony in order that we can bring the gospel to the watching world. One last scheme I wanna show you, and I gotta move a little quicker division, division. Now I'm gonna skip down to verse 17. I promise we're gonna circle back to verse 15, but just in a minute, let's skip down to verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son of law of Shechaniah, son of Ara. And his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. The last tactic we see is division. The enemy is now infiltrating and sowing seeds of division among the people. Many people in Judah are sending letters to Tobiah and Tobiah is sending letters to him. Remember him and Sambalat are like the two main guys who are opposing the mission. He said that many in Judah are bound by oath to Tobiah. We even see Meshulam mentioned here, who we talked about a few weeks ago in chapter three. This is one of the builders that is named in chapter three, is now in league with Tobiah. And what do we see going on here? First of all, it says, they spoke of Tobiah's good deeds in my presence. I'm really amused by that. Hey, you know this guy that keeps trying to kill you? He's really not that bad. He's kind of a nice guy. He's kind of funny. You should give him a chance. They reported my words to him. They were spies and they were gossips. Finally, Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. If Tobiah was alive today, he would be what we call a keyboard warrior. He is sitting there writing letters. and He's saying, trying to intimidate him, even though by now the work's done. How does this apply to us as followers of Christ? Guys, I believe with all my heart that God is doing a great work here at Coastal Church. For us here in Gloucester, God is doing a great work here in coastal Gloucester. We're seeing a lot of amazing gospel fruit. We're seeing people come to know the Lord. We're seeing people's lives changed. We're seeing people get baptized. It's not because of us. It's because of God's grace and God's goodness toward us. And there is nothing that the enemy would rather do than sow seeds of division here. We must always be on our guard. It says in Ephesians to to be careful, to, to protect the bond of peace the unity of the spirit. Let's stay committed to keeping the gospel at the center as the very thing that unites us. But even for all of these schemes, in the end, they were unsuccessful. The enemies were not successful. Now we're ready to look at verses 15 and 16, and we're gonna see the mission completed. Verse 15, so the wall was finished There we go, six weeks into this sermon series talking about this wall. It's done now. The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The wall is now done, and this wall that had been rubble for 150 years has been rebuilt in 52 days, despite all of the opposition they were facing. This is an incredible accomplishment, and look at the result It says, when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Two things happened as a result of the wall being done. First, their enemies were humbled. Their enemies were humbled. They fell greatly in their own esteem. They were like the Cowboys last Sunday night. They got humbled. I'm a Niners fan, so had to put that in there. They got humbled. That's what happens when God's work is done. The enemies look at it and they know there's no other explanation for this. God has done this. And as a result, second point, God was glorified. God was glorified. They perceived that this had been done with the help of our God. The mission was now complete. Their mission is complete. Friends, our mission is not yet complete. Our mission to go into all the world and make disciples is not yet complete. But I hope you know that that's not even in question. Here's the deal. We don't just hope that our mission will be successful one day and we got our fingers crossed and we're just hoping for the best. We know that it will be. Do you know that the end of this story has already been written? That our God is sovereign and he will see to it that his purposes will be accomplished and nothing can stop them? Do you know that we are not just hoping that things will turn out for the best in the end? We're not merely hoping that this great commission that we've been given will be successful. We're not merely hoping that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. We're not merely hoping that God will redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are not merely hoping that Jesus will come again and he will destroy Satan, sin, and death once and for all. We know we have an unchanging, rock-solid confidence that our God will keep his word and he will accomplish his purposes and nothing can stop him. And this is what it looks like. This is our, and we finished the wall verse as Christians. Revelation chapter seven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Doesn't your heart yearn for that day? Doesn't it long for that day when our mission is complete? The day will come when our enemy will fall greatly in his own esteem because he will see that our mission was accomplished with the help of our God. And we're not just hoping that's gonna happen with our fingers crossed. We know that that will happen because our sovereign God has declared that it will be so. In light of that church, what kind of confidence should we have? What kind of confidence should we have as we carry out this mission that the Lord has given us? At this time, I'd like to invite forward both our prayer team and our worship team. And as they're coming forward, I'd like to leave you with one final encouragement. There is nothing in heaven. There is nothing on earth. There is nothing in hell itself that can stop this mission from being successful. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So as a Christian, there might be moments of temporary defeat in your life, but all of these are preparing you for what God has in store. We're fighting a battle that has already been won. And so as we wrap up this sermon, where we've spent a few sermons talking about this theme of opposition to our mission, I wanna leave you with four final thoughts about opposition. First of all, when opposition comes, Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. The Lord promised that it was coming. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Don't be surprised. But next, don't be afraid because God is with you. Don't be afraid because God is with you. No matter what opposition you're facing, you can say with confidence, if God is for us, who can be against us? So don't be surprised, don't be afraid. Third, don't run away. Don't run away, don't give up because God's not done with you yet. If you give up, then he wins. Don't give up, don't run away. God is not done with you. Lastly, don't despair, never despair because you are on the winning team. And there will be a day when all of us together will be in glory with the white robes and the palm branches, screaming at the top of our lungs with joy on our faces, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And until that day, let's keep on working, let's keep on praying, let's keep on loving, let's keep on serving, and let's keep on proclaiming the gospel until God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've invited us to be a part of this mission that you've given us. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, you offer complete and total forgiveness and restoration through Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so, Father, as we walk through this world and as we encounter opposition and battles of various kinds, we pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit to be ambassadors for you everywhere we go. Help us not to give up, not to despair, not to be afraid, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and follow you day by day. We love you. We give you all that we are and all that we have. Bless us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.